Welcome to the Harvard Center for International Developments Beyond COVID podcast. This podcast is a series of conversations with CID faculty experts on various key dimensions of COVID response and recovery. Our goal with these conversations and with CID's Beyond COVID research initiative is to make use of lessons learned and capitalize on emergent innovations sparked by the pandemic in order to address losses and most importantly, reimagine global development, the post-COVID era. This week, we are joined by Americ Davies, Assistant Professor of Education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm sitting down with Americ on October 13, 2021, to discuss building resilient education systems. Americ, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. So I know that you've worked focuses broadly on the political economy of education with a regional focus in South Asia. And you've done a lot of work on private versus public elementary education in India, including examining how this affects individuals' political beliefs. Can you share with our listeners a bit more detail on the research you do and how you've pivoted during COVID-19? Yeah, sure. So to, to start with a little bit of the research I've done before COVID hit, um, one of the, the things that really interested me and motivated me was the tremendous amount of private education that we see not only in India, but across low and middle income countries across the world. India is where I, where I do most of my work, so, so, so I'm motivated with specific statistics there. But in 2017, 2018, about 40% of children were going to, to private schools. And this is a tremendous number for, for any country, but it's even more so for, for a country like India, where so many residents are low income and, and spending money out of pocket um, mm-hmm. is, is actually a large part of the household budget. So one of the things that I was interested in with, with this is trying to understand whether this huge expansion of, of private education, this huge access of private education was reshaping the relationship between uh, citizens and, and citizens as parents, as, as, as children, and the Indian state. So I did a, a bit of work trying to understand this, trying to sort of compare parents and households that went to send their children to, to private schools versus parents and households that sent their children to, to, to government-run schools and try to understand how, how that reshaped the relationships. And one of the things that I found is that people were just as sort of active in, in, in voting and these traditional markers of political participation, but they had shifted how they thought about the relative value of, uh, of the state in their lives. And they are a lot more comfortable actually with the private sector coming to play a, a bigger part in, in their lives. And the sort of, the, the argument there is that it creates a, a feedback loop with, with more access to private services. You get more comfort with the private sector with more comfort and you get more demand for the private sector. Um, and then you have people sending their children to the private sector more broadly. So I think that actually is, is one particular interesting entryway to thinking about the impact that COVID has had on, on education in, in South Asia, but in a lot of other low, low and middle income countries. And, and, and the big one is, is sort of on the role that the private sector and private schools have played during COVID. I think a really big thing that, that we should recognize is, is the tremendous economic shock that COVID had on, on labor markets, on individual level employment. And in India in particular, um, I don't know if uh, you or our listeners remember the, the, the huge amount of migration 
from cities to, to rural areas that took place when, when India and, and the prime minister announced lockdowns across India, just and desperation to sort of get home. And there are a number of effects that this, this sort of had on, on the relationship between households and, and the private sector. First, with a lot of people out of work, and if not out of work, making far less money than they did before, it meant that um, they couldn't afford to send their children to private schools anymore. Um, and there was this huge shock to the education system in that parents who were previously sending their kids to, to, to private schools now start to send children to, to government schools and, and, and state-run schools, and especially as, as schools are reopening, but the economy hasn't recovered as, as quickly as it, as it was before. This is going to lead to a large number of children who were previously going to private schools now going to, to, to government schools. So the question here for policymakers and, and us as interested observers is, trying to think about how can government schools now welcome this large new influx of children that were previously being uh, were previously going to private schools. And so you've talked more about this increase in use of public schools rather than private education. How do you think specifically COVID-19 has influenced the quality of public school primary education? And are there any initial indicators of how government-run schools can really handle this influx in students within any country like India or other middle and low income countries? Yeah, so that's a, that's a really good question. And the, the unfortunate thing is that we, we actually don't have very many good indicators. So children were out of school for a very long time, first of all. Second, we never really had great data to begin with on how children were, uh, we never really had good assessment data uh, on how children were, were performing in schools. And when children were out of schools, that, that, that became even harder. A lot of the assessments that we do are actually done in schools. If children are not going to schools, we can't assess them and, and figure out what they know and what they don't know and how we can tailor lessons and classroom instruction to what students might or might not know. So just data availability on, on the assessment level is actually not very, very good. And one of the things that if I had to pick one place to focus on, that would be an investment that I'd really make, not, not only for now, but in, in the long term to sort of let us, so we're not flying the plane blind. And we have a better sense of, of what students know and what students don't know and how, how to address that. The second part is that there's tremendous inequalities in access to things like uh, mobile phones, internet access, and internet use at home. In a survey that I was uh, doing in Delhi just before COVID hit, we found that 80% of households had access to, to mobile phones, that 80% of, of parents who were sending their children to government schools had access to mobile phones. Now, this is Delhi. This is the wealthiest city in India, the second wealthiest city in India. Rates in rural areas and rates in, in, in smaller and less wealthy cities are likely to be much lower. The second part, the 80% number might sound high, is that that access was mediated through one or two people. That access was mediated through either the father or the mother or, or both of them, which then meant that the children in the household uh, themselves, their access was restricted because they could only use it when other people were not using it. So the, the emerging evidence that we have on, on, on the ability to learn, go to remote school while schools were, were closed suggests that there's actually been quite a lot of, of there's been a, a bit of a setback in, in, in learning over, over this period. 
But as I said earlier, there just isn't enough data to sort of say where we're at and say where, where we need to go as a result of that. So you've spoken a lot about the regional disparities in access to internet and technology overall, and how there were a lot of disparate effects of remote and online instructional learning. But could you speak more about how COVID-19 has complicated the role of particularly parents in maintaining their children's access to education? Yeah, I actually think that COVID-19 has been has has led to a very interesting role for parents. I use interest in, in, in instead of complicated because I think parents have had to become a lot more involved in their in their children's education than they have been uh, before. Given the inequalities in access, both between and within households, especially within households, and that parents are the only ones that have mobile phones and have been able to communicate with people in schools, with teachers, with headmasters, they have been the ones that schools and, and teachers and headmasters have had to communicate with um, and have had to engage in providing education. So they've had a lot more hands-on role, especially during remote learning, in the uh, the education of their children. I, I was working with a number of NGOs in, uh, in Delhi who were targeting parents as the conduit during COVID to get their children involved in education. And this meant having parents involved in ways that they had never been involved with before. Just receiving homework, receiving instructions, receiving guidance in, in what they had to do with their children in ways that they never had to do before. Prior to COVID, their, their responsibilities began and ended at, at, at the gates of the school. Now when the school comes into the house in ways that would not be unfamiliar to a lot of people and a lot of households in, in the United States with, with, with children in school, parents in the household actually had to be a lot more engaged for better or for worse, in their children's education. On one level, this could, this could present an opportunity moving forward. Now that parents have become so, so involved and see what actually happens and, and see the type of lessons their children are learning, you can potentially leverage this as a school or as an NGO or as a policymaker to continue this engagement after COVID. But it has also put an additional burden on parents within, within the household. And that burden has also been gendered. Child care and, and child raising is often the, the realm of the mother within the household. And uh, this has been no exception. The parent that they've tried to reach out to has often been the mother. So one of the things that we want to be attentive to, also uh, thinking back to the inequalities within households, is this additional gender-based burden that we, we can see this as an opportunity that parents have been involved in, educa- in the education of their children in a way that they haven't been before. But we also want to ensure that this doesn't sort of exasperate inequalities in the household as a result. So evidently, there's this unfamiliarity of parents being more involved within access to education in the households throughout India. And you talk about this gendered burden and how we should also be wary of making sure that we don't exacerbate gender inequality. And that's one main learning that we've seen from the COVID-19 pandemic. But beyond the greater involvement of parents, what other learnings that have we seen from the COVID-19 pandemic that can provide valuable information on how we can continue to increase access to and quality of primary education in the future? That's a great question. And I think there are two. One that I alluded to before, which is the need for greater level of assessment and evaluation. And this is assessment and evaluation, not to, to, to discipline and, and regulate and track, but assessment and evaluation to just sort of get a sense of where we're at. 
what students know and how we can tailor learning to where students are at. So there's, there's going to be a tremendous demand for information, both on the socioeconomic conditions of the household as we emerge to, to school reopening, but also learning and assessment of the, the student and the child. So, so making investments in, in, in that would be, be crucial and having those institutions in place would be super important. I think the second learning that a lot of NGOs, which can be a little bit nimbler in, in responding to a crisis like COVID, is the very different ways that you can actually provide education and, and educational resources. And, and, and a lot of NGOs have been sort of very entrepreneurial in how they deliver content. And they've had to do this by necessity in how they deliver content to, to parents, to households, to children. Um, and there's no reason why this has to end with COVID, right? Schools can still be the primary place for children to learn and socialize and make friends, but there's no reason that we can't think of children edu uh, as children's education more broadly and think about other places in which they can learn and other ways in which we can engage parents. And I think this is a lesson that a lot of NGOs have been, been taking to heart. They now have these connections with parents. They've now thought about these different ways of delivering content, whether it's text messages, whether it's lessons through WhatsApp, whether it's calling parents daily and, and providing sort of a fun activity that reinforces some learning with their, with their children. Um, there's no reason why these need to stop COVID. They were necessary when schools were closed, but if they prove to be valuable, they prove to be useful for parents and children uh, in, in their learning. Um, there's no reason why we can't use those both in the civil, uh, in, in the non-state sector um, and, and in government and private schools to sort of extend education beyond the four walls that of the classroom. So I think those would be the two things I, I, I would say. First, flying blind is, is, is not useful and there's a tremendous amount of, of data collection that'll be useful to assess where we are, both for the socioeconomic status of the household after, after COVID, but also in terms of learning and assessment, but then also in the various ways to engage parents and children in schooling and education that doesn't stop at the school gates. I find it especially interesting that you've talked about broadening the sense of education and what education may look like, especially as NGOs have become more involved with providing particular content, whether that be through text messages, et cetera. And so as you broaden the education system overall, are there any responses that you see within the education sector that can overlap, that can provide relief beyond education itself, whether that be like COVID mitigation, hunger relief, emergency services, especially amidst political instability or other future public health threats? Yeah, that's a, that's a super interesting question. And I, and I think there's, there's, there's a couple of things here and they work in a number of ways. First, teachers and schools have a, a, a very unique position and, and sort of NGOs that are involved in, in, in education have a very unique position is in that they have high frequency contact with a lot of households. And when, when school was in person, the school was in person, it meant one parent or both parents dropping the child off at school every day and picking them up from, from school every day. So, so using that as sort of a, a check-in to see how, how households are doing and, and, and be able to connect with sort of broader service provision there. Schools, and, and I saw this a lot in Delhi, schools are also just huge physical in infrastructures in very central locations. And one of the, the interesting things that was done in Delhi is that schools were then transformed into hunger relief shelters, to migrant, uh, into hunger relief centers, into migrant shelters, where people could come pick up food, people could come pick up rations, migrants that were stuck in Delhi that were looking to get out um, or moving about the city could find a place to, to stay safely. They'd have a, a hot cooked meal. 
Uh, so it also provided broader, it assisted in, in broader relief efforts just because of the centralized physical infrastructure that schools provided. So I think sort of tying into both as, as we start to, to emerge from COVID and during disaster relief, both the sort of high frequency contact schools and NGOs are involved in the education sector have with parents. So some of the interventions that we saw with uh, during COVID, these WhatsApp messages, these uh, with these lessons over WhatsApp, these were daily interactions, right? So with that, you can also just have a soft talk, touch check-in, um, asking how are you doing? Are there things you need? How can we help you beyond just your child's education? And then second, just the the, the sheer physical infrastructure of schools that is that is very centralized and, and easily accessible areas that for a large part of the time during COVID were just shut for, for their primary purpose, which was educating children, right? And you can turn these spaces into for other purposes rather than their, their primary purpose. I would love to consider how the daily effects of education on families and children, how do they compound over time so that we can ask the question, why is education specifically important for youth's long-term success, especially in terms of the job market and other social factors? Yeah, so I think education has a very unique role to play in, uh, in, in service provision, that it's one of the only services that is redistributive today in terms of we need to, to tax and redistribute to, to build schools, finance schools, to pay teachers, but it's also redistributive over time, right? So if you get an education today, tomorrow you'll be able to get a, high, a higher paying job, you'll have access to different labor market opportunities that you wouldn't have before, you will have resilience in the face of, of, of labor market crises like COVID in the future. So it's also a, a, a social insurance mechanism over time and, and, and a social insurance mechanism for individuals uh, over time. So if, if you get an education today, you have opportunities that otherwise would not be available and a greater diversity of opportunities that hopefully would not be affected from uh, by a pandemic or other, other disasters in the future. And going back to, to, to where I started, with the profound economic shock and labor market and migration crisis that happened in India at, at the beginning of COVID, the people most likely to be affected by this were low-wage manual laborers, right? And if you can move people out of that part of the economy, that provides social insurance. People who are able to, to, to get educated today, that provides social insurance um, in, in the future too. And so you've talked about how education is a social insurance mechanism that lasts over time and there are effects from the economic shocks of COVID-19 that will be long-term. We are aiming to remain more forward-looking in these conversations to learn from the experiences around the world of this ongoing crisis, particularly for development. In your mind, what are the most important factors to building more resilient education systems for the future. This sounds a little a bit like my 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 wish list for uh, for for the future. COVID made us realize at the beginning, and that was quickly forgotten, um, was the tremendous importance that schools and education plays in the entire economy, and just being able to have somewhere where such a basic function, just being able to have somewhere where parents could drop their kids off and not have to be concerned with them and then go about their, their, their daily life and, 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 and work 
was so important and it became so stark at, at the very beginning of the pandemic, especially during shutdown, and, and which was sort of very apparent to, to, to a lot of people in, in the West, but also in somewhere like India. So I, I, I think one thing to make our education system more resilient is figuring out how we can extend that sort of very basic care function that schools provide beyond just sort of the, the, the doors of the school. Right. And, and how we can think of the role of the school and the, and, and the teacher beyond just the gates of the school. And I think one nice thing, if, if we can say that about COVID, is that it forced us to do some of that thinking and it forced us to, to, to in a moment of crisis, do some of that thinking and think about how we, we can sort of bring the school home. And if we can continue to think of creative ways to bring schools, bring lesson plans, bring homework, uh, bring homework home. I think that would be one way that we can make schooling more more resilient to in 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 the future. Well, thank you again for just outlining your wish list and all your reflections about bringing education home. You can find more information about Americ's work on his website, americdavies.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at, at @eeemda. Thanks again to Americ for taking the time to talk with us today. You can learn more about the Center for International Development and CID's Beyond COVID initiative at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back soon.